question for you, friend. What keeps you up at night? If you were honest, what are the things that strike fear into your heart? The things that, if you could, you would, and probably do, skip past them on your Facebook feeds uh, because you don't want to think about it for too long because it really would startle you. Fear, um, extremely common. Fear in scary times is one of the things that we experience as humans in a way that's unique among all other created beings. As we contemplate it, we think on it, we meditate on it, we imagine what might happen. No matter what plans we've put in place, no matter where we live, what resources we have, whatever we have going for us, it doesn't change the fact that fear is a very real thing. In fact, it's been said that the Bible is a book of fear, about fear, (laughs) rather, because God is very concerned with meeting his people where they are, and that includes meeting them in very scary times. If you've ever dealt with fear, then the Bible is a book for you, and today we're going to look at some of God's most potent words that speak to us in the midst of those scary circumstances. It's also Reformation Sunday, uh, one of my favorite Sundays, along with all the other ones, uh, It's the Sunday closest to October 31st, uh, which is the day, of course, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. We celebrated it last year with a huge party because it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, which means happy 501. Um, In many ways, though, this was an extremely unexciting moment. It was kind of akin to posting something on a community bulletin board. Luther didn't think that anything huge was going to happen. He just wanted to have a conversation, a theological conversation. But God used that to spark one of the greatest movements in church history that we still feel to this day, the Protestant Reformation, that ultimately would result in the gospel becoming front and center once again in the life of the church. And where the gospel is front and center in the life of the church, Christ is front and center in the life of the church because the gospel is the good news of what God has done to save sinners like us from the wrath that we deserve for our sins, and he did it through Jesus Christ. That's what the Reformation was all about. And what Martin Luther understood was that the gospel is everything, and because it is everything, the church either stands or falls with the gospel. The Reformation was an amazing time in church history, but also a very scary time for those who were living through it, because the whole might of the Holy Roman Empire was set against it, and that is no small opposition. During some of the scariest times of the Reformation, Luther would turn to his friend, Philip Melanchthon, and he would say, Philip, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm. It was his favorite And it was the inspiration for him writing that famous hymn that we love to sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He took it straight from this psalm. And today we're going to look more closely at this precious psalm that gave birth to what was called the battle hymn of the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress. And I'm going to call this the battle psalm of the Reformation. And even though we're not facing the same circumstances that Luther, Melanchthon, and the other reformers were facing, I would yet say to you now, come, let us read the 46th psalm together. So, looking at the text in front of you, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, 
Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The the nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's look at the superscription together for a moment. See what's going on. It's written to the choir master of the sons of Korah. Perhaps last time you read through Numbers, you came across chapter 16. If you read through all of Numbers, then you did come across Numbers chapter 16. There was a story of a man named Korah who led a rebellion. And that rebellion was against Aaron and the priesthood that was chosen for his family and his descendants. Korah and his fellows thought, you know what? We're all of us holy, equally We will all of us approach the Lord. No one's more special than anybody else. So down with the priesthood. Give it to the people. And God, who had invented the priesthood, of course, took it very personally because it was a direct assault upon God and his word. And so do you remember what happened? They're standing around, and just to make sure that nobody missed the big picture, God declared his displeasure on Korah and his rebellion by opening the earth under their feet, down they went, the earth closed over them. Where's Korah? I don't know. Who's Korah? He's gone. And later in Numbers, I mean, that was pretty dramatic. We find that Korah's children were not part of the group that was sucked up in the earth. God did not punish the children for the sins of the father. And God used the family of that rebel to then go on and become songwriters in Israel. And they wrote this inspired psalm, Psalm 46. These are the sons of Korah that are mentioned here. And it's written according to Alamoth, which is a word that means a young maiden. Some translations, like the New Living Translation, would translate it um, to be sung with soprano voices. So the young ladies would sing this song in higher voices. That's the direction that's given. And so that just even that superscription alone shows the mercy of God to, to families that include really sinful people. Kind of makes you think of some of your ancestors and you're like, I'm sure God, I'm sure glad God's had mercy on my family. And uh, so that's the situation here with this song. And the structure of the song is obviously is broken into three stanzas or what are called three strophes. And each strophe is concluded by the musical um, instruction sila. Might have been a moment for the musicians to change from the guitar to the banjo. It might have been a moment, probably was more likely a moment of quietness to contemplate what had just been sung. You ever get through singing something and you think, what in the the world did I just sing? And you realize, I don't know where I was, but Selah is always a good time to think back on the truths that we're singing about. 
And that's what's going on here at the end of each stanza. And each stanza moves us through the presence of God. The presence of God is what binds this whole psalm together. And in the midst of a very uh, troublesome moment for the people of Israel, as we're going to see, this psalm drew their attention to their present God, who in the first stanza is the source of their peace, who in the second stanza is the source of their protection, who in the third stanza is the God who exerts his power on their behalf. And that's the outline of our sermon today. We're going to look at the peace of our present Lord, the protection of our present Lord, and the power of our present Lord. Looking at the time of crisis among which the people of God found themselves, and looking at the way that God still today meets us in troubled times. And so we look at the first stanza, verses 1 through 3, the peace of our present Lord. This psalm begins by drawing our attention heavenward, which is always a good place to have your attention focused, to look at God, not on the circumstances. The God whose presence is the theme of the psalm that binds everything together. And verse 1 sets the tone. All scripture is written with a tone, and it's important to try to feel what's going on in whatever portion of scripture we're studying. And the tone that is set here is one of quiet confidence and sure trust in a God who will not fail us. You can hear it. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is there in the scariest times of life. And in fact, if I could give you the big idea of this psalm, the one thing that it would have you to bring home with you in your heart today from this sermon, looking at this psalm, is, it, is this, that the Lord is our mighty fortress in the scariest of times. The Lord is our mighty fortress in the scariest times. Everyone goes through scary times, and some of the times, let's not mask it, some of them are terrifying. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. Things are not as they should be, and not definitely not as we would have them be. And yet in those times, God is our mighty fortress. Which raises the question, who can say that? Who has the right to say with the sons of Korah and the people of Israel, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So the hour there is very important for us to understand because it either means we're in or we're out. God is our refuge or he's not. And the context of this psalm makes very clear that he's talking about his presence with his saints with his saints, with those who trust in him alone, who belong to the one true God of Israel. He is the refuge of his people, it says. The first line, literally translated, would say, God is for us a refuge and protection. God is for us a refuge and protection. I think what the psalmists understand is that everybody runs somewhere in troubled times, don't they? When you've had a really bad day, where do you go? What brings you comfort? What helps you get up the next day and do it again? When you've been through a time that is so harrowing that you're not sure if you're going to make it, where have you gone? You can think of any number of places that people go to find comfort and refuge in times of distress. Alcoholism is the result of one of the places that many people go in times of distress. Entertainment. Our entertainment culture, where we're, as uh, Neil Postman has said, entertaining ourselves to death, is a result of people finding refuge. We will, all of us, find refuge. The question is, where? 
And this psalm clearly answers the question for Christians. Our God is our refuge and our strength. And not just a refuge and strength that you go to and hope that something's going to happen. No, look how he's described in the second line. He is a very present help. This is not a God that you hope will hear you the way that the pagans hoped that their gods would hear them. The way that Muslims hope that Allah will receive their sacrifices and be pleased and one day let them into heaven. This is not the hope of the false gods of all the nations of the world where they think that if they do enough, God might receive what they have to offer and be gracious to them. No, this is a God who if you go to him on his terms, he is a very present help. Now, he wrote that. He wrote that. How eager do you think he is to communicate to you that he wants you with him? He is a very present help. You will not call to a God who is indifferent, but a God who is eager, who as soon as you say, Father says yes. What? And the reason we need this God as our refuge is because believers go through scary times. If you sat through the sermons on James 1 so far, I don't know how you can have taken away any, anything other than hard times will come, okay? Trials are part of the package. We don't know the future. It is scary in a world that is soaked with sin the way that ours is. We don't know when bad things will happen. Believers go through troubled times, and if you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus makes no attempt to cover that fact up. He puts all the cards on the table before people come to him, even people who are trying to come to him. And he says, listen, it's not what the health and what prosperity preachers told you. Things don't necessarily, they're not necessarily going to be easy for you. In fact, if we understand Jesus, it very well may be the opposite. When you're all in with Jesus, you're all out with the world. And the world, he says, will hate you. And so God's people have never had any shortage of enemies, not to mention the normal sicknesses and trials, relationship strifes that are part of our lives. Being a Christian is one of the most difficult callings in the world and also the most life-giving because it's the only one in which we have for our very hope and refuge, the Savior of humanity, giving us eternal life, promising us that while it's not easy, it is worth it. While it's not Going to be roses, we will get eternal life, and all of it is worth it because he is our treasure. And oh, what a treasure he is. Have you not found that to be true? The guarantee here is not that troubles won't come, but that whenever they do, God is very present. And verses two, three, verses two and three show us how present he is. And, he, and they do this by looking at the scariest times that you can ever imagine. Look at this. What do you think is being described here? We will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Friends, these are catastrophic disasters. Imagine being just, just standing just in, in, the, in your house, going about your business, and all of a sudden the earth is moving in the kind of way that makes mountains fall into the ocean. I was in the 1989 earthquake in the San Francisco Bay Area. I don't remember a lot from that period of my life because I was only four, but I remember that. I remember that the house that we bought, not shaking, shook. That wasn't part of the real estate deal. It was, it was a big deal. 
And that, that's just such a small picture of the kind of thing that is being discussed here. The earth moving and giving way. There's no stability. I mean, what do we have if we don't have firm ground beneath our feet? That we can't go anywhere. And the point that the sons of Korah are making here is that when your world turns upside down, nothing is as you thought it would be and definitely not what you thought it should be. God is there. And for some of you, you have a very personal connection with this type of a thing. I barely mentioned it, such a circumstance, and you thought back to a time when fill in the blank. When fear seems most reasonable, we don't need to be afraid, is what the psalmist is saying. Because friends, when is it more reasonable to be afraid than while earthquakes are destroying Indonesia? Then when your house is shaking, when you don't know what's going to come next or if you're going to end up in the right side of things. In those moments, because of God, our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble, because of that, we will not fear. Friends, this is supernatural stuff. There's no aspect of human nature that makes sense of that type of peace. This is the Prince of Peace calling out to his people, take refuge in me because there is none other. So I return to my question, what keeps you up at night? What is it that terrifies your heart if you let yourself dwell on those things? When your world is shaken to the core, how do you respond? Friends, I understand fear makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. And I find myself very afraid at times of things that could happen or things that are happening. But the truth that we confess that God is for us in Jesus Christ, that he is with us in Jesus Christ, and he will keep us in Jesus Christ. That truth is here what, that transforms his people so that they can actually say and mean it, our God is our refuge, therefore we will not fear. Even in this circumstance, even in this trial, Philippians 4, 5 through 7, that great prescription of God for those who suffer from anxiety goes exactly to this theological reality in order to make the point and then apply it to our hearts with clarity. Look what Paul says, the Lord is at hand. Isn't that exactly what our psalm is saying? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Fear is normal. He's not saying don't have that visceral, emotional sensation of fear. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the activity of being anxious, responding to fearful circumstances and trials by dwelling, meditating, wringing your, your hands, getting aggravated in your soul. He's saying that's what we do not need to do because the Lord is here. In the midst of the fear, when it makes sense to be anxious, don't be afraid. It's that simple and it's that hard. It's both simple and extremely hard because, again, it's only by the supernatural grace of God and his ministry to us that that's even a possibility on the table. 
and we're reading it, and God's speaking to us, and he's telling you, I'm here, I care, don't worry. There's certainly nothing wrong with trying to come up with solutions to problems that present themselves. There's no, no harm, no foul in trying to get through a circumstance by coming out on the other side alive, okay? He's not saying sit back and don't do anything. What he's saying is don't do what we so naturally tend to do, which is focus on resolving our problems, come up with solutions that make us our own saviors, and worry and stay up and fret and plan as if God were not who he is. That's the thing we don't need to do. That's when we get into trouble and sink into the sea like Peter because we stopped looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and have instead looked at our circumstances in fear and tried to resolve them without him. We fear because we don't know what's going to happen, and we're afraid that what we're facing is going to harm us. And God is saying, I've got this. Do you trust me? He is our peace as our present Lord. But he's not only our peace as our present Lord, but then he goes on to say that he is our protection. This is the protection of our present Lord in the second stanza, verses 4 through 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Look at the transition there. What kind of waters did we just see in verses 2 through 3? Are they peaceful waters or roaring waters? We've seen the roaring and raging waters of adversity when everything turns upside down and nothing is as it should be. And then in direct contrast to that, as we enter into the second stanza, we see peaceful waters, river that makes glad the city of God. Where were the people of God in this psalm? What city? This was Jerusalem, folks. We know that because it's the holy habitation of the Most High. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant, God's own presence with his people for their good, sat in the temple. This was the glory of Israel, Jerusalem, where God's people could come and worship him and know him. And it was there that God's presence was manifest. The waters that the psalmist is thinking of probably were the Gihon Spring which was in Jerusalem, right outside of the, the walls of Jerusalem. It was a natural spring that fed the city of uh, Jerusalem with water. And when you're in the middle of Israel, and you're in a city on a hill, and there's no other water around, how important to you is something like a Gihon Spring? The people totally love the Gihon Spring. Probably made t-shirts about it. Ah, hashtag Gihon. But then that spring was brought into the city of Jerusalem in Hezekiah's time, we read about Hezekiah. He actually dug a tunnel and brought, you can actually walk through it today, by the way. And uh, that Hezekiah's tunnel would feed the Gihon Spring waters down into the pool of Siloam, a pool that we see in the Gospels, a pool you also can visit today. This is huge to the people of Jerusalem. They need this spring because when people stop having water, they stop being a people, right? It's kind of important. But lest we would think that he's only talking about natural springs, he's looking to the way that God has provided this natural comfort for a people that desperately needed it, especially in times of siege. And he's saying this represents God's presence. He is, he is the joy that you have. He is with you. 
a very present help in trouble. He is, so to speak, the river that makes glad the city of God, which is to say he makes glad his people, his people. The joy of his presence. Charles Spurgeon looks to this, and he goes through other parts of Scripture and shows how in various places God the Father is shown in terms of being a fountain of living water. Jesus Christ is shown to be a living water for his people. The Holy Spirit is shown to be living waters for his people. In Jeremiah 2, 13, speaking of God the Father, he says, For my people have committed two evils. This is God the Father speaking. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God the Father is living water for his people. In Zechariah 13, 1, looking to the day of Messiah, the prophet says this, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. To whom do we go to find cleansing from sin and uncleanness? It's God the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who poured out his blood for our salvation. Who also said of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 7, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Friends, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of who God is, is for your gladness. And aren't you glad? He's for your gladness. He is the living water that makes glad his people, the holy habitation in whom he dwells. But pools and rivers and springs, or God, are only comforting and gladdening when we actually partake of those waters. The pool of Siloam did no good to anybody until they drank it, until they washed in it. God and his presence for us is there for us to enjoy. If God's presence is going to make you glad, it is because you get to know him, you spend time with him, you partake of him through faith in all the various means of grace that he's offered for that very purpose. I tell my kids oftentimes, no one gets to know God accidentally, so spend time with him. Go to the Bible. When you wake up in the morning, make it your routine. Go and be with God, because he is there, that's no question. Are you glad? Partake of those waters. And know that as you do, whatever times come, whether the mountains are moved into the hearts of the sea, whatever troubles you face in all of the various kinds that you can face them, verses 5 through 7 are true, and his presence is there not only for your gladness, but for your protection. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God's people will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Well, when? Well, it says, when the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. God is our help and our refuge precisely when we need help and refuge. When is it that you need somebody to come alongside of you? It's when you're in trouble, right? It's when you're in trouble. Troubles come, they're not fun, but God shows just how helpful he is in those times of trouble. Remember, uh, remember the scripture reading that Luis gave to us earlier. That incredible event in 701 BC, 
okay? The, the Assyrian Empire is the dominant world empire at this point. Just 21 years earlier, they defeated the 10 northern tribes. Because remember, this is the period of the divided kingdom. Israel is no longer one people, but two kingdoms. Judah to the south, with Jerusalem at the heart, and then the northern tribes known as Israel. The Assyrians came in 722 BC and totally overtook the people of Israel. Many of them went captive to Assyria, and the rest who were left were under Assyrian domination. Judah, and specifically Jerusalem, had not fallen under Assyrian control. But what we read today was that in 701, okay, just 20 years after the northern brothers and sisters fell, all of the Assyrian army, or many of them, 185,000 or so, were there at the gates of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem's up on a hill with some valleys, and it could be surrounded. And if you were surrounded by 185,000 of the army of, uh, of the major world empire at that point, you tell me how you feel. That is scary times, okay? I personally have never experienced anything like that. And imagine what the people of Jerusalem must have felt. In that moment, they were trembling, and they had a choice. Were they going to turn to God and find help from him, or were they going to try to come up with the solution on their own? Many commentators think that that particular situation in 701 BC was the context in which this psalm was written. And if it wasn't that one, it was definitely something like that. So imagine God in the midst of his people, in the temple, at the ark, saying, I will not let you be moved because I am here. And what happens? God will help her when morning dawns. The King James Version says, God shall help her and that right early. God will help him, her, right early. That's a fun way of saying it. Have you ever been in a circumstance when you needed help right early? And did you find that God came through? He does. He does. The people of God needed him to come and help them right early. And what did, in our reading, we find happened when morning dawned? They came out, and what had the angel of the Lord done? 185,000 Assyrians dead without a single Israelite hand being lifted. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And as history went on, we find that she was not moved as long as God was in the midst of her. This should have been a wake-up call to the people of Jerusalem who prophet after prophet ignored God's call to them to repent and believe and find refuge in Jesus, to find hope, find peace, find life. And they killed the prophets. They stoned those who were sent to her. And then what happened? They continued to go off worshiping as they saw fit, idol after idol. And in Ezekiel's day, the Babylonians, who had taken over the Assyrian Empire, because now the Babylonians were the dominant empire, we're talking just 110 years later, the Babylonians had started to capture people from Judah. And Ezekiel was one of the earlier captives who went off, and in Babylon, God goes and gives him the book of Ezekiel, this prophecy. He starts prophesying around 592. I know I'm talking about a lot of dates here, so let's keep them straight. 701, God delivers Jerusalem under Hezekiah by overcoming the Assyrian army. God is in the midst of her. 592, 110 years later, Ezekiel's given a vision in chapters 8 through 10 of the, the idolatry of the people of Jerusalem being so grave, so gross, so 
present in the temple. It says in Ezekiel 8, he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me from my sanctuary? Rather than worshiping the God who is reaching out to them in love, prophet after prophet, they continue to harden their hearts. And the result was God left. In chapter 10, it says, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. As we read on, it goes up over the Mount of Olives toward Babylon, and God's presence has left his people. He is no longer in the midst of her. A few short years later, 586, what happens? She was moved. The Babylonians took over. The people were carried away captive, and finally Jerusalem got what they couldn't get when God was in the midst of her. Captivity and desolation. But God was in the midst of her here. He's in the midst of his people now. The nations rage, the kingdom totters. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Nothing can stand before the voice of the living God. And we're introduced to a refrain in verse 7 that will come back again at the end of the psalm. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts, literally Jehovah Sabaoth. Lord Sabaoth, his name. Remember Martin Luther wrote, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. He must win the battle. And he did and he will and he always will. He's the commander of heaven's armies. That's what that title of the Lord designates. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. He is for his people and no force on the earth, no matter how big, can ever overcome what he will do for those he loves. I always like to be the one to read the first Christmas passage of the year. And I'm going to do that for you right now. In Matthew chapter 1, this is significant. There is a connection. I'm not artificially inserting Christmas, okay? Even though you know my family and that's a possibility, it's not happening. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, catch this, God with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is with us. And if you are in Christ, then literally his name to you is God with us. God with you. So you tell me, how big of an army would it take for you to fall? With a Savior whose name is God with us, I think what we see is that it's not possible. Not possible. Because Christ Jesus is with us, peace in trouble is our birthright. You don't have to pray hoping that God will give you peace in troubled times. Friends, he's given you his son. The peace is there. You might want to pray that you would take advantage of that. But the peace is there, and he promises to protect you from all that threatens to shatter you. 
That's important for you to understand. He promises to, to protect you from all that will shatter you. And I'm talking shatter you. I mean, lose your faith, run away from God, give up altogether. Because I know there's somebody in here, because if I wasn't up here, I'd be the one in the pew going, really? In every circumstance? Explain Luke 21, 16 through 19 to me. We have to understand exactly what God's promising and what he's not promising. Otherwise, we're going to think that God may have let someone down at some point. Jesus, talking to his disciples about what they could expect to happen as the ministry of the church goes on, he says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. You kidding me? Some of you they will kill, and yet not a hair of our head will perish? What do you mean? I thought that a hair of your head perishing meant you died, right? Friends, what Jesus is saying is, and I heard this, uh, Albert Moeller said this once, they can kill you, but they can't harm you. They can kill you, but they can't harm you. God sometimes intervenes miraculously, heals the cancer. Thanks be to God, that's a blessing. Let's pray for it. Let's go get treated. But make no mistake that if the cancer kills you, it will not harm you. It doesn't matter how great the army is that's coming against you. You can fill in the blank with your darkest nightmares. And I promise you this, because God is promising you this. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Not a head of your hair will perish. When every circumstance comes against you, when it would make the most sense for you to fall away, lose your salvation, and call it quits, not a head of your hair will perish. The Lord is our mighty fortress in the scariest times. And because of his presence with us, we can have peace when our worlds turn upside down, when it doesn't make sense, when it's excruciating, when we, like Job, cry out and say, why? I don't understand. His presence with us gives us rest and quiet confidence in those moments. <sighs> he is our peace through his presence. He is our protection through his presence. And make no mistake, he exerts his power in his presence in order to do all of these things. And this is the power of our present Lord that we see in verses 8 through 11. He is the loving God who is with his people and also powerful for his people over all nations and all adversities and all trials that will come to shipwreck you. See, friends, remember the armies of Israel's enemies were surrounding Jerusalem. There was no human hope. You aren't going to find help to come against 185,000 Assyrians. The Assyrians, they were nasty, nasty people. The things they did to other Israelite cities are harrowing. Oh, it's disgusting. And this is what the people of Israel were facing. And it was in that moment that the Lord intervened by showing the power of his strong arm. Behold the works of the Lord, it says, how he brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The nations of the world may try to destroy God's people, but he shows his power to protect. And we have to understand he didn't just do this in the past. He's going to do it in the future. 
The kind of language that the psalmist uses in verse 9 is used in Isaiah, used in Ezekiel, used in other parts of Scripture to show what will happen when our Lord returns. Look what happens when the Prince of Peace sets foot on the earth. Isaiah 2, the Lord shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Does that sound like the Lord making wars to cease to the end of the earth? It's coming. It's coming. In Ezekiel 39, talking about that day right before the Lord returns bodily from heaven to take his people and to rescue them. And before he sets up his kingdom on the earth, it says, beginning in verse 7, In my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. <clears throat> Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bow and arrows, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years. That's a big bonfire. Folks, that's what God's doing with the weapons of war that are brought against his people. That's what he will do with every trial and adversity that comes to test you. One day when Jesus wipes away every tear from his people's eyes, make no mistake, wars will cease to the end of the earth and the Prince of Peace will reign and we with him. Thanks be to God. There are lessons for us here as we seek to follow after Christ. Verse 8, that command to the people of Israel to behold what God had done. Behold the works of the Lord, how he brought desolations on the earth. That command is as important for us today as it was for the people 700 B.C. Whatever you've been through, think about the fact that if you think hard enough, if you think long enough, and it might not take you very long at all, actually, could you not come up with a list of grace after grace after grace that God has poured out on your life, faithfulness to you when you didn't know what would happen. Look back on his past grace to you and know that in the future his grace is coming in spades. And then right now, when you can't sleep, like Luther, turn over, maybe wake up your spouse and say, come honey, let's sing the 46th Psalm. And after she hits you, then sing, maybe in your head, let her go back to sleep, you go to sleep but sleep. You can because the Lord of hosts is with you. The God of Jacob is your fortress. And then don't forget when you wake up in the morning to do exactly what the psalmist does in verse 10 and exalt his sovereign power. And this now we hear from God directly. Of course, the whole psalm was written by God through the psalmist, but now he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. For most of my life, I thought that this was a verse that I had to look to and that I was supposed to look to to just find peace in troubled times. And it is, but that's only part of the meaning. Who is God declaring his power over when he wipes out 185,000 Assyrians in one night? Isn't that a pretty bold poster? Like a, an advertisement? Warning. Attack my people at your own risk. Okay, this is who's, this is who's here. <laughs> Beware of dog. No, no, no. 
Beware of God. Okay, dyslexics, don't worry. We have a Lord who tells anyone who might come against him and against his people, be still and know that I am God. This is a declaration of victory. This is, this is an invitation to those who would stand against the Lord and against his anointed. Lay down your arms and exalt my sovereignty, because guess what? It's going to be exalted anyway. Guess what? I've already won. Guess what? You're going to bow. Isn't that what Paul said in Philippians 2 at the end of that wonderful hymn that Christ took on human flesh and he was humiliated for your salvation and mine by bearing our sins on the cross and he was exalted to the right hand of the Father and one day every knee will bow. This is more than a warning to armies that come against Jerusalem. This is a warning to anybody here right now who has not yet laid down the arms of their life and submitted to the Lord of glory. Make no mistake, he will be exalted in you. You will decide whether that means he will be exalted in your condemnation for the sins that you have committed and are committing against him and your unbelief, or whether he will be exalted by your lips in a heart of thanks and praise because you know that you have no other hope than his son crucified for your salvation, risen in glory, and one day returning. There are, no, there are no qualms about it. There are two sides, two people in this world, those who are with the Lord, or rather those with whom the Lord is, and those who have taken up arms against him. And every single person who says, I've got nothing against God, I don't mind Jesus, he's just not for me, they've taken up arms against him. God says, whoever's not with me is against me. There's no middle ground. So the question for all of us here today is, have you laid down your arms in repentance and faith and exalted him as the one true God and your only hope? If you haven't, hear God's voice right now. Lay down arms. Be still and know that he is God. And if you have, if you have, and you are inside the walls of Jerusalem, so to speak, with the Lord himself as your protection, then friends, be still and know that he is God. He ex exalt him. I am one who is prone to complain when the going gets tough. And his word to me is, Rick, don't. Don't complain. Don't fret. Don't whine. Your kids will end up whining more and you don't want that anyway. Don't whine. You don't have to. Instead, exalt me because I've got this. We don't need to complain in scary times. And have God say to us what he said to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Oh, we don't need to be, by God's grace. Because we have Psalm 46 that we can sing. And join with the saints throughout all ages who exalt the Lord in the midst of the scariest times. Scary times will come. And uncertainty is a fact of life in a fallen world. I wish it wasn't. It is. But because God became flesh and dwelt among us, we are not doomed to be moved with mountains into the heart of the sea. Armies may come against you. I'm not going to say they won't. And you know what? Let them come. Fine. The God of hosts, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The God who made covenant with his people Israel is the God who draws you near to him through Israel's Messiah and joins you with his people, and he is no small protector, no matter how big the opposition is, no matter what form it takes. The Lord is our mighty fortress in the scariest times. 
So friends, when you need to take refuge, don't do it in your savings. Don't do it in your retirement. Don't do it in your kids. Don't take your refuge in your entertainment. Don't take your refuge in any other good gift that God has given, by the way. Don't do it. Let goods and kindred go, Luther wrote. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Please pray with me. Lord of hosts, you are with us as our peace, as our protection. Your power is exerted for our salvation, for our preservation, and for our glory. You will not let us go, and we praise you. We joyfully sing with the reformers, Soli Deo Gloria. To you alone be the glory, because we could not do these things. We would not. We cannot. But you have done them for us through your son, Jesus Christ, who alone is our hope, our refuge, and our protection, not only in times of trouble, but in the day of salvation. Father, if anybody here has not taken refuge in the shadow of your wings through Christ, move them there now, please. And for those you have so moved, as you are building Sun Valley Church, we pray that we would take strong confidence in you who are our refuge. We do not pray for troubled times, Lord. We pray as our Lord taught, deliver us from evil. But God, we know that you are sovereign. And in your wisdom, when trial comes, when they test us beyond our hope and endurance, please help us. Help us not to despair, but to sing the 46th and to glory in you who are exalted in all the earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.